0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. He rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. Father, we too glorify You for the authority that is invested in Your Son Jesus Christ, the King of all creation, the Redeemer of Your people. Lord, we ask that as You speak to us from Your Holy Word, that we would have the grace to listen. In Christ's name, Amen. There is something in Matthew's account of that event that you could easily miss. And it is, to my mind, one of the most beautiful things about this event. The fact that this paralytic man had friends. I think sometimes of the man beside the pool at Bethesda who could not even bring himself to the water for healing because he says he had no man to help him. And here's a man whose condition was worse, but he was surrounded by friends. He had friends who were willing to help him. He had a community of faith because that is what they were. Jesus, in the story, sees their faith, we're told. The faith of these friends who didn't just bring him to Jesus for healing, but as we know from the other Gospel accounts, overcame in very creative ways some obstacles in order to get him there. He was surrounded by people who cared about him, who wanted to see his wholeness restored. People who had faith that Jesus could do this. That he had the power to make their friends whole. And they came... And they brought Him to Jesus, and there was no obstacle that they were not willing to overcome so that He might find Himself in the presence of the Savior and receive from the Savior what they all knew Jesus could give them. And then Jesus, seeing their faith, gives Him the wrong thing. He says, take heart, My Son, but not rise and walk. He says, take heart, My Son, your sins are forgiven you can imagine that moment how puzzled everyone must have been at what had just happened they had not only brought someone for healing which was something jesus did he had a reputation for it it's the reason why they brought him they brought him for healing jesus tells him to take heart that sounds good optimistic calls him my son that's a term of affection things are going really well but then your sins are forgiven This man is paralytic. He suffers from a very visible disease. He's unable to control his body. He's paralyzed. He has no power over himself. To heal that man is a dramatic reversal of his condition. It's something that that anyone who knew him would see the difference night and day. But what Jesus does is invisible. What Jesus declares is something that no one can measure. No one can look at the man and say, oh, look, his sins are forgiven. I can tell a real difference. You can't perceive anything at all. Well, they can't. Not the friends, not the community of faith. They find themselves in a position that we can relate to as people of faith. Seeking wholeness, not only for ourselves, but for those that we love from Jesus. And we bring them to Jesus sometimes in very creative ways. Overcoming real obstacles. We bring them to Jesus, expecting Him to do what they need done. And He does something else. Imagine their confusion. This wasn't what they'd asked for. It hoped for real world deliverance, and Jesus gave them something invisible, something abstract. But not everybody was baffled. Some people in the crowd were maybe a little excited. We get a little bit of an anticipation of the criticism that Jesus will face later, where we'll have wave after wave of Pharisee and scribe trying to entrap him, to trick him, to have some basis to bring him up on charges. They don't speak their objection out loud at this point. They entertain it amongst themselves. But when they hear Jesus' words, they say to one another, they say to themselves and their minds, this man is blaspheming. This man is sinning in what he said. Physical healing is one thing. That's incredible. Jesus does these wonderful signs, but forgiveness of sins? That's something else. If you're a scribe, if you know the law, you understand the significance of what Jesus has just said. The fact of the matter is only God can forgive sin. Only God can do it. And He's already shown us how He does it. God forgives sin in a certain way according to a specific, let's say highly specific, procedure outlined in Leviticus and elsewhere. We saw this when we talked about the cleansing of the leper, but for the forgiveness of sin, there must be sacrifice. There must be a priest to administer the sacrifice. It must be done according to all of the rules so that when the priest, who is the proper representative of the God who saves, pronounces the forgiveness of sins, we can know it is real. We can see through the sign of the blood on the altar that that is legitimate. Not this. Not some random healer just declaring that your sins are forgiven. No priest is on hand. No sacrifice has been made. None of the procedures that God has outlined have been observed. Instead, Jesus has just declared your sins are forgiven. And Jesus is just a man doesn't have the power to do this. That's why they say it's blasphemy. The objection essentially to Jesus is, hey, look, stick to healing, man. Stay in your lane. Don't veer across the line into things you have no power over. Just do the thing that we came to you to do. In a sense, you can see where both those who believed in Him, and those who doubted, shared a kind of common confusion about what it is that Jesus was doing. Jesus doesn't back down. Jesus meets the criticism head on. But of course, in order to meet the criticisms, He has to know about the criticism. And here we have a display of His authority that's pretty extreme. Because they're entertaining evil thoughts about Him in their hearts, silently. Again, invisibly. And Jesus says, why are you thinking these bad things? Why are you doing this? If you were a scribe, that might have made you a little nervous because you hadn't said it to His face and yet He knew. He knew your heart. Jesus insists not only that He has the authority to heal, but also the authority to forgive. And the way that He insists suggests that those two things are the same thing. That the power to heal and the power to forgive sin are all tied up together. It is one authority. They are two parts of the same whole. Jesus is God. Jesus is our High Priest. And Jesus is the sacrifice. He possesses an undreamt of ability so that when He declares... Your sins are forgiven. You can be certain that they are forgiven. What he has said is true. The order of Jesus' actions here is really interesting too. The first thing he does is forgive the sins of the man. Later in the story, delightfully, and I'm sure a relief to his friends, he also tells him to rise and walk. So he gives him the healing that he came for, but first he gives him what he did not seek, that he did not perhaps even realize he needed. Forgiveness of sin in that order. Jesus doesn't say first, rise and walk. And then when the man gets up, say, ah, your faith has made you whole, therefore I declare your sins forgiven. The forgiveness its declaration does not come after the man acts. It does not come after the man shows faith. In fact, the paralytic does not show faith here. At least it's not written. It is the faith of his friends that Jesus sees, not his own faith. Instead, Jesus forgives his sins and then tells him, rise and walk. The forgiveness comes first. And then the ability to act in obedience to Christ's Word. That's how it happens for us as well. We do not rise and walk, and if we walk steadily enough, if we walk long enough, if we obey His Word the right way to the right extent, He doesn't eventually look down at us in pleasure and say, now your sins are forgiven. Like the paralytic man, we in our sins are helpless. We find ourselves in our sins unable to move. Unable to control ourselves, even our desires. We cannot rise and walk. And Jesus, finding us in that state, pardons us. Says, your sins are forgiven, now rise and walk. It's interesting, too, to see the reaction of the crowd to this. The way that this story ends is something we've seen before. Matthew will give us a a snapshot of people's reaction. And what's happening is they're, they're kind of coming to terms with new layers of the authority of Jesus, the King, as these layers are being revealed. So once again, he's shown them a new power Not only can he heal, not only does he have authority over creation, not only does he have authority over, as we saw last time, the darkness, but now he possesses the authority to forgive sin. And they respond with fear. It's the good kind of fear. Awe. They're in awe of Jesus. And they glorify God. God. These words are a formula of words that are synonymous with worship. So what they witness Jesus doing, this display of Jesus' power, it leads them to worship. And that's a good lesson that we can learn from them. That we too, when we see Him at work, when we see the miraculous way that He brings sinners to life through forgiveness and sets us on the road of obedience, we too should glorify His name. We too should fear Him and worship Him. And yet, there's a little note at the ending. One of those those phrases that sounds good the first time you read it, but as you keep reading it, you do begin to wonder when Matthew says they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Which suggests that they still don't quite see Jesus as He is. They see that He has more power than they realized. The power to do things they thought only the priests could do in the temple. And yet, when they look at Him, they're still thinking, this is just an extraordinary example of God's authority bestowed on men. They haven't yet grasped who this man is. That He is in fact the God-man. The Son of God. Divine and human. The thing that brings you to Jesus isn't always the thing you need. When I as a pastor talk to people who have maybe never been to church before or have been away for a long time, but now they're developing like a new habit, a new discipline, and you ask why that is. What is it that has motivated you? It's interesting. You'll hear a thousand different reasons depending on the person and on their experiences. But oftentimes the things that motivate us in those moments are not really the things that we need. Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows better what we need than we do. Jesus doesn't always give us what we want. He doesn't always give us what brought us to the cross. But He does give us what we need. And By God's grace, He often gives you what you want on top of what you need as well. But when you think about the reasons that we come to Jesus, why we come to Him, why we pray to Him, what are the, the things you pray about? What are the things that, that motivate your prayer? What stops you in the course of a day and you think to yourself, you know what? I should just pray. I should pray about this. And we come to Jesus, obviously, as this man did for healing. Our prayers are full of either appeals to God to heal those who are sick or thanks to those who recover. We come to Jesus for success. We come to Jesus to be successful at work, successful in life generally. We come to Jesus for love, either to find love that's missing from our lives or to restore love come to Him for acceptance. We come to Him because we feel like there is no one else we can go to to be accepted. Sometimes we come to Jesus for fulfillment or for a better life. We come to Jesus to guard our families. We come to Him to save our marriages, to land a new job, to make more money, to have a better life, not just for ourselves, but for those we love. We come to Him because we're seeking peace and into the turmoil inside of us. We come to Him because we want to grow in knowledge or we want to find contentment. We come to Jesus for all of these things. One thing is needful. What we need from Jesus, first and foremost, is forgiveness. What we need from Jesus is forgiveness. And all of those other things, as good as they are, and as much as we desire them, are nothing in comparison to what we need from Him. We need Jesus more than we think. We need Him more than we realize. And we need Him for something oftentimes that we are totally blind to. You don't feel your need for forgiveness It's because you don't see your true condition. You don't recognize your sin for what it is. And you're not alone. Most of us don't. Most of us have literally no idea. For the last two weeks, as I've been preaching at, or teaching at Worldview Academy, although some of my teaching sounds a lot like preaching for reasons you can well imagine, um, a question that I've asked my students is this. How can I know that a certain person is a sinner? I won't do it here. I like at camp to single people out, individuals who seem especially uh, uh, vulnerable, although this does sometimes famously backfire on me. But, but I'll single out some students and say, like, I think he's a sinner, but I'm not sure. I need a way that I can know objectively. How could I know that he's a sinner? And I'm asking them to give me sort of Uh, tests, procedures that would allow me to know. A simple, reliable indicator. Oftentimes, the answers they come up with will be one form or another of some kind of theological reasoning. So they'll say something like this. You can know that he is a sinner because all human beings are fallen. All human beings are sinful. So we can work that out Uh, logically, right? We can use the, the Socrates syllogism. Instead of saying all men are mortal, we'll just say all men are sinners. Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is a sinner. I can reason about the sinfulness of that person based on the premise of the sinfulness of all men. So I look upon him and I can know rationally that he must be a sinner. Others are more pragmatic, and they'll come up with uh, basically what amounts to observation and application. They'll say, if you want to be sure that he's a sinner, you should watch what he does and see whether or not what he does violates the law that God has laid out. So if you have enough knowledge of the law, and then you can observe the individual long enough, you'll see, oh, he's wearing a blended fabric. And it says in Leviticus, we shouldn't do that, therefore he is a sinner. Right? So there's a reasoning process going on, but there's also observation. I, mean, I can be certain by observing their behavior and then comparing it to God's law. God forbids this. That man does it, therefore that man is a sinner. As you can imagine, I don't accept any of these answers as satisfactory. I say, no, 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 this is too hard. You're asking me to reason about something. You're asking me to to know some theology, to, to philosophize about this person, to take these abstract concepts. Or you're asking me to do the difficult work of applying the Bible to particular situations where I then have to interpret what applies and what doesn't and what sense does it apply, and then I need to judge the heart of that person to know did he intend to do what he did the way that I perceived it or not. It's too complicated. I need something simple. I'm a simple man. Give me something easy and objective. And we can literally have that conversation for as long as I have time on the clock. And almost never will we get to the most obvious answer? The most obvious, the easiest, the most objective test for determining whether any human being at all is a sinner. When we approach the problem of sin, we approach it as if sin is an abstract theological concept. It's something you would only know about if you happen to have read the Bible. And then when we think about how we might know that we are sinners, we say things like, well, I'm not perfect, therefore I must be a sinner. Well, who's perfect? We say, well, I do bad things, therefore I must be a sinner. But how bad? Compared to who? For most people, these are measures that only work if you've already bought into the abstract concept of sin. If you walk up to random people on the street and say, are you perfect or not? They're going to think you're crazy. Like, nobody's perfect. What are you talking about? Do you do bad things or not? Well, I mean, I do bad things, but I'm not a bad person. But sin isn't a philosophical concept that we can only recognize through abstract reasoning. It's not a subtle flaw in the human fabric. Uh, Sin is not like, for example, the lead pipes in the Roman Empire that supposedly made everybody a little bit sick over hundreds and hundreds of years and eventually led to their fall. It's not hidden at all. Sin is not invisible and it is not abstract. It is a reality so large that it is literally hidden in plain sight. What if it's as simple as this? Death. Death. Death is the test. Death is the simple, objective measure of the problem of sin. I know that you're a sinner because you're dying. I know that you're a sinner because you're sick. I know that you're a sinner because you're heading for the grave. The wages of sin is death. Every sickness every defect, every blemish is a harbinger of death. And healing and forgiveness are connected because of the connection between sin and death. It all goes together. The scribes tell Jesus to stay in His lane, but this is His lane. This is what He came to do. He's not healing people because He wants to make their lives a little better. He's healing them because He wants to save them. He's healing them because He's come to destroy their enemy, death. That's His lane. That's what He's here to do. All around them and all around us, death reigns. That paralytic man, death will claim him. His healthy friends, death will claim them. All human beings will die. You are human. Therefore, you will die. Death will claim you. But Jesus has the power to say to death, stay in your lane. These are mine. That's what Jesus is showing us here. He's giving us a taste of his real power and also his real love. What he's actually come to do. He's come to destroy death, to take death's lane away. And every healing, every good thing He does is a glimpse, is a harbinger of the life that He's come to give. In your order of worship, there's a longish quote from the theologian Oscar Coleman. It's long, but it's good, and it's worth meditating on. He says, nevertheless, death as such is the enemy of God. For God is life and the Creator of life. It is not by the will of God that there are withering and decay, dying and sickness, the byproducts of death working in our life. All these things come from human sin. Therefore, every healing which Jesus accomplishes is not only a driving back of death, but also an invasion of the province of sin. And therefore... On every occasion Jesus says your sins are forgiven, every healing is a partial resurrection, a partial victory over death. When Jesus says your sins are forgiven, it's not a non-sequitur. He's not talking about something irrelevant to the paralytic's condition. He's talking about the actual problem that no one else around Him perceives. They think what Jesus can offer Him is to be restored to health but if, in fact, Jesus is restoring him to life as he restores us. That's the irony. Oftentimes, when we come to Jesus, we come to him for health. And then Jesus gives us life, which is different. By being restored to health, that's like hitting the reset button, like undoing the damage of your years, rolling back the effects of sin, putting more time on your clock. That's great. But what Jesus actually gives is more than that. To be restored to life means everlasting wholeness. It means standing righteously before the face of God, freed from the grip of death. That's what Jesus gives. That's what you need from Jesus. And only Jesus has the authority to grant this. Only Jesus can do it. Jesus proves to the scribes he can do it. Right, He demonstrates in a really dramatic way how his power has no boundaries. Like you say, I can't do what I'm doing. Hey, look, rise and walk. And the man gets up. And they're afraid. They're in awe of what they see. He proves he can do it. But how can he do it? How is it possible that he can do it? He is the only one who can. It is because Jesus is God. It is because He is the Son of God. He is Himself divine. He has the power not just to declare things so and they are so, but the power actually to do the work of salvation that must be done to undo the damage of sin. Jesus can do it because He is our High Priest interceding for us. Because on the cross, He does make a sacrifice of Himself as an atonement. The procedures that he didn't go through, the motions that he didn't go through in order to declare forgiveness, he didn't need to go through because he was going through the reality in that moment. He was on his way to the cross to make the sacrifice that every little sacrifice beforehand had pointed to. That's how Jesus could do this. But wait a second. I said, death is evidence of sin. If you die, I know for certain that you have sin. But Jesus dies, and He was without sin. That's the beauty of that how. Jesus was without sin, so He took it. He took it upon Himself. He took our sin, and He carried the weight of all of it up to the cross with Him. He bore our sin and then death claimed Him as it claims every human being. But when Jesus died and death claimed the victory, death was wrong because Jesus rose and then death was put to death. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul, reflecting on this fact, cannot help but crow. He cannot help but gloat a little bit. He cannot help but sing a little victory dance. Rub the enemy's nose in it. He sings, Satan is swallowed up in victory. Oh, Satan, where is your victory? Oh, Satan, where is your... No, he doesn't. It's not Satan that he gloats over. It's not Satan that he dances a little jig of triumph about. It's death. It's death. The last enemy, he says, is death. And the last enemy will be destroyed. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? You claimed us and you thought you would have us. And you did for a season. But now He has us, and we walk in newness of life. Your need for Jesus isn't abstract. You don't need to philosophize in order to figure out whether or not you need Him. You don't need to watch your actions and measure whether or not you're messing up or doing well. None of that is necessary, because your need for Jesus is written in your body. Your need for Jesus is written in every pain, in every ache, in every infirmity, in every sigh, your body cries out and declares to you, You need him more than you think. One day death will come. Death will say, You're done. But when death says you're done, Jesus will say to you, Rise and walk. Rise and walk. Come home with me to the house that I'm building here in the dwelling place of God with us. Death will have no dominion, no victory, no sting. That's what we need from Him. He has the authority to forgive sin and you need it more than anything. As faithful friends of others, like the paralytic who are similarly in need, Let's remember what it is that they need from Jesus too. All the many things that we could hope for our friends and our loved ones, above all one thing matters, and is the thing only Christ can give forgiveness of sin. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at org, We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.